The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional Consciousness. Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This New Age channel told us so Donald Trump is a massive and powerful light worker. A light worker? And then what about this Oprah endorsed, best selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals that are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G? As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense. This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshiping. Stuff. It gets very gory in the basement. And it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the Capitol insurrection. But it didn't stop there. Every week on Conspirituality Podcast, we track the overlaps between New Age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. I'm here this week with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick to discuss episode six of our series on the cases of Lee Clark and Kane Story. Hey, guys. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. How you doing? I'm good. I'm doing great, actually. We just recently got some news from Georgia. For those of you who listened to season two of Undisclosed on the Joey Watkins case, you'll know that he had a pending um, habeas petition before the Walker County Superior Court, where he was back in 2016, um, held in prison. Last month, he had a hearing in that finally after COVID delayed everything. And as of Monday, the trial court issued a ruling overturning his conviction, and that's now pending the state's decision of whether or not to appeal it. Um, but it was a fantastic step forward for his case. Um, it was a strong ruling. The court found in favor of Joey on all three of the claims that were still pending before him and found constitutional violations on all three fronts. And now we wait and see what the state decides to do. If they want to appeal to the Supreme Court or potentially if they don't, at this stage, we just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty fantastic and it's huge news, right? It's a, it's a huge huge step forward. We have known that Joey's legal claims were very, very strong for a long time now. Um, the hearing proved that they were factually strong as well. The witnesses and evidence were very compelling. There was nothing that undermined any of his claims. The state's witnesses, in fact, reinforced many of Joey's claims. And now the trial courts agreed and found that because of these constitutional violations, his conviction should be thrown out. And the interesting thing for 
just in relation to the season of proof is that the Joey Watkins case is also a Rome, Georgia case. It is from about four years after this case. And many of the players are the same. I mean, Dallas battle figures peripherally in the Joey case and, and Joey introduced you to Lee Clark. Correct. Joey did not know either Lee Clark or Kane's story before he went to prison, but in prison, they were by chance at the same facilities a few times and became friends there. Um, and it was Joey who first told me about Lee Clark's case, or rather not first, his, uh, Joey's attorney, Rex Abernathy, who was also the attorney for Lee Clark, told me about it um, at one point before I believe I'd heard of Lee Clark case or knew what it was about. Um, but then Joey told me about it and introduced me to him. And that's how I learned about this. So, yeah, we don't know about this story for season one of Proof without Joey. The other interesting thing, the stories have a lot in common. So. Yeah, and Dallas Battle was um, one of the officers at the scene in the Joey Watkins case. It was involved a highway shooting. Uh, a teenage boy was driving home from the community college down there and shot by another car, ran off the road. His truck was off in the woods on the side of the highway. Um, and a big issue in that case was the state's claim that Joey could not possibly have recognized this truck when he drove past it later that night. Um, now, Joey is a huge car buff who knows everything about cars um, and talks about cars the way some people remember people. <laughs> um, he remembers everything about vehicles. So to me, it's not shocking that he would recognize an old classmate's truck they saw on the side of the road. But Dallas Battle's testimony was that uh, the way the truck was positioned, it was impossible to see any identifying features. And therefore, Joey could not have identified it as the truck of Isaac Dawkins. Now, the photos of the crime scene, again, taken by Clyde Collier, who you heard about last episode of Proof, um, show that these features that Joey identified would have been visible, um, contrary to Dallas Battle's claims. That's amazing. And how in the trial, though, they, the, the jury would have seen these same photos, right? They would have. Now, the photos that were selected, um, who knows if they were all the photos or just the ones given to the defense attorneys. For instance, they have the truck door open, so it is blocking the view of the front of Isaac's truck, which Joey says has the feature that was most identifying to him. The thing he saw that made him go, oh, look, that's Isaac's truck. And because the door is open, the way the camera is taking the photo, you can't actually see the front of the truck. And the claim is that therefore no one driving by can see the front of the truck. Same players. Same old, same old Floyd County. Now, the, the prosecutor involved is different. Um, Tammy Colston was the, the prosecutor for the Joy Watkins case, but she was not the one in court um, for Lee Clark and Kane Story's case. For Lee Clark and Kane Story, it was uh, Steve Cox. Yep. But same photographer. It's always the same photographer. <laughs> now, I will, I will note that Floyd County has moved away from the system, so it is no longer true that uh, their crime, their homicide photos are taken by a private photographer. Um, but for many decades, that is how things were done in the county. Well, I think it's great news and um, about Joey's case and the habeas. Um, will you keep us posted? We will. And next week, we hope to talk about it in more depth. This week on Proof in episode six, we heard about some of the physical evidence in the case as well as what some of the jurors thought about that evidence. As we talked about at the start of the episode, sometimes juries do things you'd never expect. You can't predict what they're gonna do. Once they get back there in the deliberation room, they're on their own. They can do whatever they want, essentially. Well, within certain bounds, but they can use whatever methods they want 
to assess the evidence of the trial and come up with a conclusion. Talking to some of the jurors was was sort of shocking because you do get a little bit of an insight on, on their thought process, what they remember, what they don't remember, how much of the actual law or instructions they took into consideration and how much of it was just a gut feeling for them. I think I was a little bit surprised by that. I will admit I was surprised by the juror who thought that it was evidence of murder that Brian Bowling had not shot himself in the mouth. He seemed to think that the only way to play Russian roulette was playing it with the gun in your mouth. And therefore, a shot to the side of the head means this was not a self-inflicted wound. And had anyone said that, like in I, open court or could have been said in the deliberations? You don't, but. It, I don't think so. I think that was just his own personal beliefs that and how he assessed the evidence. You know what I was impressed with is on on one of the, the little trips I made to Rome to to join you guys when you were out trying to find people is we spent a couple of days with you trying to find a a juror. And I know that you were both becoming frustrated because it was a POV that you desperately wanted for this season to really understand how they came to certain conclusions and what they were thinking. So I think it's a great addition to the story to have that POV because there was a time where that was proving to be incredibly elusive. Yeah, it took for the first, I don't remember how long, we actually had a lot of bad luck trying to find any jurors at all. Um, Later, we did manage to talk to a few of them, but it took at least a week, I think, just to to find one that would talk to us about what they were called from being on the jury. Yeah, and there's still a few out there we'd like to speak to. So if you happen to be listening, (laughs) reach out, please. But yeah, I mean, it's such a unique perspective. Like Kevin said, it, 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 talking to the jurors tells you what stood out to them, what pieces of evidence really stood out to them and why and, and how they came to the conclusion that they did. And um, so, yeah, I was really thankful that the few who did agree to talk to us agreed to it. And their conclusions are often different than other people because they're not supposed to be following the press, right? They're not supposed to be reading articles about it or talking to people about it. So we often find with jurors that it's, they have a very unique perspective because they're not supposed to be influenced by outside media. And then you find out what really rang true because it's not like they, they went home and watched the evening news about it or read yeah. about it. I also thought it was interesting to hear from jurors about how they assess the people in this case, aside from the evidence, aside from witness testimony, just as people, what their thoughts were. Um, and in this case, it does seem that there were a lot of assumptions drawn about Lee and Kane based on their perceived social status, where they're from, their lifestyles. What's interesting, though, is that because the defendants don't have to testify, although in this case, actually, Kane ultimately did, but because their families aren't testifying, most of the information in this case is not really about Lee or Kane. It was about Brian Bowling and his family. And talking to jurors, you can hear how their assessments of Lee and Kane were often influenced by their assessments of Brian. Meaning that the Bowling family didn't have the greatest opinion, certainly of Lee at least, and that Im- impacted their, their sort of take on him? Well, I'm thinking in particular of the juror who told me that um, after seeing the state of Brian's bedroom, she drew a conclusion that Kane and Lee were not being raised well and that they were never taught to learn right from wrong. Um, Where in reality, Lee had actually been vocal that he felt it was 
wrong how Brian's bedroom was. And he very much had a sense that this was not right. And yet for the jurors, it was used as evidence that he lacked a moral compass. I think that juror said something about um, from the photos and from the information she gathered throughout the trial, that they came from what she called rough, rough families or rough environments, and that children are often a product of their environments. So for me, when I heard her say that, I thought she took it to mean that this theory that that Kane and Lee killed Brian was conceivable given their backgrounds, given their environment. And we also heard a lot this week about the pillow. Um, and we heard about our interview with Tommy Shiflett, Captain Tommy Shiflett, who was the head of the investigative division for the Floyd County Police Department. That was one of the more surprising interviews and I think we had Jacinda just because of um, Captain Shiflett's responses and his assessment of the evidence, which was in many ways a mirror image of our own. And coming away from that, did you have any thoughts about this mysterious pillow and what may explain the weird chain of custody? I think I came away from talking to him more confused than when we started, because like you said, he had all the same questions we had, like, what do you mean it was in my trunk and how did it get there? And how could I have not have seen it? And, you know, are you sure it's even the same pillow? And those are all questions and they're all legitimate questions. But the fact that he was posing those questions, like I, I think it says in the episode, you know, I almost felt like he was making fun of us. Like we were ooing and awing over something that really isn't there. Um, that, that's sort of what I came away feeling after talking to him to put things lightly, this is not how evidence should work. And it is crazy that we cannot even begin to establish with any kind of certainty where it came from, when it came from there and how it got to the police and where it was for the time in between. Um, it should have meant the pillow was not usable as evidence at all, um, I believe, but. Right, the, the pillow should have just been thrown out, period. But. Now comes the question of, is it the pillow? We see a pillow in some of the crime scene pillows that matches the description, a blue couch pillow with blood on it. Um, is this the same pillow that, that Kenneth says he found in a hole in the wall? Is it the same pillow that Uncle Michael says he found under the bed? Um, you know, what, what we know for sure is that the pillow that was in the court um, courtroom, like the actual physical pillow that was in the courtroom, is the same pillow as the one displayed in the photographs of Brian's bedroom. Um, there's a couple witnesses who testified the blood stains on them are consistent. Um, so barring extremely unlikely um, identical blood splatter situation, um, the pillow in the photos is the pillow in the court, which according to the GBI is the pillow they tested for the presence of gunpowder residue. And the results came back negative, no gunpowder residue on the pillow that they tested and the pillow that was used as evidence during the trial. Even if there is this second mysterious pillow with gunpowder and a hole through it, it doesn't matter because it, you, you can't convict Kane and Lee on a pillow that you can't see or produce. Or have any information about where it came from or what it is or... In trying to figure out how to assess the evidence, like I've thought about this and I just come up at a loss because this idea of a second pillow is sort of floated a few times, but there's just nothing to go on. It's a hypothetical, theoretical pillow that maybe 
could possibly have been a silencer, but we don't know where it would have been or where it was found or if it existed? Right. It's really confusing. I think that there's a bite in there from, I believe it's Kenneth who is talking about, you know, after we showed them the crime scene photos and that the pillow was there when they took photos that night, he said something about, well, maybe somebody came back later. And then he says, and why they didn't just take it, I don't know. And that's the other thing. Like if, if someone came back later to hide a pillow or hide a second pillow, because everyone agrees that Kane and Lee would not have had time to hide a pillow that night, um, you know, in between the shooting and when the family rushes in, there was no time to hide a pillow in a hole behind a dresser. If someone came back later to hide a pillow, why would they hide it and not just take it? It should also be noted that Brian's mother testifies at trial that when she came into the bedroom, she saw Kane with his hand behind a dresser, implying that he was in the process of hiding the pillow when they busted into the door, came into the bedroom, see what was going on. That is not supported by other witnesses who were there. Kenneth is asked at one point, was Kane's hand behind a dresser? And he says no, although he describes him standing in that area roughly. But he does not claim, like Brian's mother does, to have actually seen Kane reaching behind a dresser into this hole in the wall. And given they have to move the dresser to do it, it seems unlikely to me that that could be what actually happened. I mean, it's one of those things with the pillow. Nobody will ever know what happened. And in a weird way, nobody will ever know how actually important it is, but it just has a mythical status. Yeah. End of the day, the pillow does not matter to this case. It was not used as silencer. It was not part of a murder plot. Although the jurors reached a different interpretation, I feel confident saying based on the evidence that there is flat out no possibility whatsoever this pillow matters to the case. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere. No one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in The Daily Book Club. Well, the other thing we don't know, you know, like the pillow and having a lot of questions that may never be answered. We talk about in this latest episode that we don't even know 100% for certain that it's the right gun they they have because the, the bullets were lost and there was no ballistics done on the gun. We do know that Dallas Battle says that the gun appeared recently fired and then clarifies that it's because there was an empty casing in it. But there are ways you can tell if a gun has been fired, um, at least since it's been last cleaned. 
which is never even noted or commented on. Um, I mean, basically, we just don't have any physical evidence whatsoever, which is the baseline problem of this whole case. I guess it's not really disputed. I mean, Kane says it's the gun Brian shot himself with. Kane says he brought the gun. Dallas Battle says it looks like the gun had been fired recently. I was just surprised that there's actually no, there's nothing to confirm that. Nothing that was presented in trial to confirm that it's actually the gun. And how do you convict two people of murder when you don't even know that you have the murder weapon? In a lot of ways, this is Schrodinger's case. Um, there's so much undetermined that everything's like in a state of multiple forms. Um, we don't know what's in the box. We don't know whether it's theory A or theory B. All possibilities still exist because they've not been collapsed down due to actually testing the evidence. And, and that in theory would be why they charge them both with conspiracy, right? As opposed to, seems like you have to prove fewer facts. It means you don't have to prove the completed crime. Yeah, or that which one of them actually pulled the trigger. And I guess it allows the jury room for interpretation because now they could say, well, maybe there was a second pillow or maybe Lee had his own gun or maybe this. So you can fill in a lot of those blanks, um, whether or not you're supposed to, I don't know, but I, I assume that's something that happened in, in the deliberation room. I think the prosecutor in this case was spared from ever having to put together a singular coherent theory. There was never a need for him to say, this is actually what happened, as opposed to saying, here's a series of possible variations that may have possibly come to pass. Um, any one of them is good enough to convict and we need not examine if any one of them is even possible. But the conspiracy issue brings us to this week's listener questions. Um, we have one from Heather Sky Minter who asks, um, were there any other unindicted co-conspirators? And no, in this case, there was just Kane Story and Lee Clark charged with the crime and then named in the indictment but not charged was Brian's girlfriend, Caprice. There, one thing I kind of thought going into this case is that I suspected or you know, assumed there might have been others that were implicated but not charged or believed to be involved. Because again, this is a gang murder theory. The gang was not just supposed to be Brian, Lee, and Kane. In fact, there's at least four people involved in this crime that's supposedly the motive for the murder, um, the safe theft. So I thought that perhaps the family and friends of the victim or the police thought that maybe there were other gang members involved in the murder. And almost, I was gonna say universally, but by and large, that's not the case. No one suspected the other supposed members of the gang or whatever were involved. No one thinks that there's other freebirds. Well, that's not true. There are some people who wonder about other freebirds, quote unquote, but the police don't seem to seriously contemplate the possibility of other gang members being involved in this, which is kind of crazy given that their like first piece of evidence was the note in Brian's casket that says narcs on it crossed out, who was from a boy that was not charged and according to police, never even questioned about the case. I mean, you could argue that they wanted to prosecute or charge the people who they thought they had the, the best case again. That, that's what I assumed was going on. But from what we can tell, that's actually they just literally did not think that anyone else was involved. It wasn't a question of lack of evidence other than for Caprice. It's that they literally did not think that anyone else was involved in this, despite the theory being a gang revenge murder. And if it's a gang revenge murder, you would have to assume that at a minimum, they would interview anyone believed to have been in this so-called gang. Yeah, especially the ones who would also have been, quote unquote, narked on by Brian under this theory. 
but that according to police did not happen. We also have a question from Rogue Nana who asked, where is the window? Are the blankets hanging over the window plywood? Is it a huge window then? And she's talking about the photos of the crime scene, which you can see up at our site. And there's two blankets, a blue one and a green one hanging up on the wall of Brian's bedroom. Um, to clarify, the, the bedroom window we're talking about is under the green blanket only. The blue one's just over a piece of wall with holes in it, I believe. But the plywood over the window is just on the right half of those blankets under the green blanket. And you can see from the crime scene photos that the board is up and the blanket is still over the window at the time the photos were taken. Kenneth and Amanda recall running in and, and the board was down, the window was exposed. But like we mentioned in the episode, no one remembers actually putting the board back up and fixing the blankets over the window. Um, so it's really hard to reconcile, you know, the witness memories versus the crime scene photos. Next week, we're talking about the autopsy, or rather the lack thereof, as none was done in this case. We'll also be talking to experts who have looked through the file and the photos that we do have, who will give us their opinions on um, the, the nature of the wound and whether or not it was a close shot or one further from a distance. And that really will help people to understand what may have happened that night and who may be responsible, right? I mean, if it's a close contact wound, then Lee can't really be involved in shooting. That's right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Proof Sidebar. And we're back on Monday with episode seven. If you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we're Proof Crime Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at The View from LL2 and on Instagram at SOO Simp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too at Jacinda Proof. 